Alright guys, let me just open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll just dive right in. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together around your word. Lord, I do pray that you would please be blessing this evening. Bless our study of scripture, Lord God. I pray that you would please just help us to... Uh, every single day in our personal study and week to week uh, from the teaching and the Bible studies and teachings and the services, Lord, that we would just be growing ever more deeply in our knowledge of you, Lord God, that you have chosen to reveal yourself. And I pray that we would just have a greater understanding of your character, of your plan, and of how we ought to live faithfully for you, Lord, I do pray that you would be uh, building up our faith, giving us greater confidence, a stronger foundation for our faith, and just be uh, continuing to help us to grow closer to one another as we all together draw closer to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're on to Abraham and... This is a huge installment in redemptive history. So uh, to this point, we've seen God creating the whole world very good, commissioning Adam to uh, extend all of the kingdom to make the whole earth a temple of God. Obviously, we saw Adam fail in that work. And then we saw the whole world judged in the flood of Noah. And then uh, last week, We saw God place the creation under a new covenant order in a sort of new creation with this uh, call to stability and culture building. And so that's where we last left off. And then you have this period of, you know, generation after generation. Hey, Kathy. Hi. Anyone coming in behind you? No. Perfect. Grab a seat. Grab an outline. Um. So you have this uh, period of multiple generations where there's no new revelations of the mystery of Christ that we talked about, that there's no special revelation from God between Noah and Abraham. Uh, But tonight we're going to get into Abraham. So the texts we're going to be looking at are Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7, and then chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. So let's read the word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then if you turn the page over to chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 21. And this is um, several, uh, many years later, after that first event in Genesis 12, many years later, pick it up in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And that's where we will take it from tonight. So, obviously, a lot of material here for us to get to. Um, and, you know, just like I say, you know, every week for you guys, if you have any questions or any, you know, comments to add, need me to slow down or repeat something, feel free to raise your hand, chime in. We can do that. Did you guys grab an outline, Elizabeth and Nathan? Uh, no. Could you? Yeah. He, he doesn't need one, but I do. Sure. So, as I said, we've seen, you know, from paradise to the fall, to the judgment, to that new creation, to where we all are now. And now with Abraham and with the covenant that God makes with Abraham, this really lays the foundation for all the rest of Old Testament revelation from this point on until John the Baptist and the ministry of Christ. It focuses um, revelation and focuses the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God made, where God said to Eve, or to, to the serpent, to Adam and Eve, that a seed of the woman would come, would crush the head of the serpent, would you know reverse the curse and its effect. We talked about all the ramifications of that. This covenant with Abraham focuses that promise from just the broad human race to this one single family from Abraham in the line that would come from him. And so from here to the end of the Old Testament is the history of God establishing and governing the kingdom of Israel, and through that, revealing more and more of the mystery of Christ. And it's really through Israel, almost exclusively from here on out, that we have those installments of the mystery of Christ revealed. And so again, it's one family, one kingdom that focuses uh, that promise that God made in the garden. And we know from the promise in the garden and then from all the unfolding of God's revelation that God's grand plan is for a global uh, cosmic recreation, uh, you know, rolling back of the curse, ultimately destroying death, destroying the curse, and bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. That's God's grand plan of redemption and you know, bringing all of creation to its consummation, to the Sabbath rest. But now, beginning here, um, it's, it's going to start developing very narrowly. That grand plan of God develops in this very narrow scope through this family and this kingdom that's formed and governed under three distinct covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. These three make up the, you know, the, the, the governing, they form the kingdom of Israel and they govern the kingdom of Israel. And so that's the direction that we're going with this class, you know, through the rest of the fall and into the spring looking at, at those three distinct covenants and beyond. Um, 
But it all starts here with Abraham. And so this Abrahamic covenant, for us, we need to uh, be able to consider it on two distinct levels. We need to consider it on a historical level and on a typological level. And so this is why that very first confusing class, we talked about typology and those definitions and all of that. For those of you guys who weren't here or for this is new, typology is basically um, specific people, places, events uh, in the Old Testament that point forward to something greater and different from themselves and find their fullest meaning in Christ and in his kingdom and his covenant. And so the reason why we tried to lay some of that groundwork is that especially with the Abrahamic covenant, when we get here, we can distinguish between the physical, historical realities of the covenant with Abraham and the 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 pointing forwardness of it, what it foreshadows, what it reveals about the mystery of Christ. And so we need to get these straight because it's really with the Abrahamic covenant that you have a lot of divergences in covenant theology. Most everybody agrees with you know creation to Noah, what's going on. But once you get to Abraham, you know different solid theologians uh, see see it differently. And you know in order for us to rightly divide it and understand what God is doing, we need to understand these two elements: the historical dimension and the typological dimension. So, uh, first and foremost, on the historical level, um, the covenant that God makes with Abraham is a real, physical, literal covenant covenant with literal promises, with uh, real blessing, real curses in time and space and history. It guarantees, and you know, it deals with real geographical territory and real physical people and the literal physical offspring of Abraham. We're going to talk. A little bit more about all that in just a minute. Um, you know, gives them a real law to live by, real blessings, real curses, all of that. And like we said at the very beginning of this class, every covenant needs to be considered on its own terms. Um, that the the scope and the effect of each covenant has to be considered uh, in and of itself. It, we can't make it say any more or less than what it actually says and what it actually does. And again, I'm kind of laboring this right now because as we'll go through tonight, I think it'll be clear to you guys, with Abraham, we often read the Abrahamic covenant and the promises of it, and we kind of go straight to all the ways that it points to Christ, which is important, but first and foremost, we need to understand that real, physical, literal, historical nature of it. Uh, does that make sense? Are you, any questions so far? All right. So you have the historical level, but then also we're going to look tonight and next week as well, but especially tonight, at the typological level of the Abrahamic covenant that it foreshadows, points to, and promises much more than it actually itself accomplishes. Um, and we're going to see, even tonight, that almost every aspect of the Abrahamic covenant points forward to Christ into his kingdom. But one thing that's important, and we also talked about this in the beginning, because again, our temptation, because we love that all the scriptures point to Christ and we rejoice in that, and that is, it's wonderful. That's so much of what this class is about. But we don't want to neglect the covenant itself. The Abrahamic covenant is significant in and of itself, even without pointing forward to Christ. It has meaning and significance by itself. So just because there's these glorious pictures and symbols and types and shadows and all the rest that points forward to the greater realities, it doesn't mean that the literal, physical realities are not meaningful in and of themselves. And so we need to be able to consider and to appreciate this covenant on both levels, both what it does physically and literally for Abraham and his offspring, and also what it promises and foreshadows to be done later in Christ. Um, still good so far? Okay, perfect. Um, so let's start out by looking at Genesis 12. 
because it's in Genesis chapter 12 that the covenant is promised to Abraham. And one quick little note, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, um, but as a quick side note, this narrative comes directly after the account of the Tower of Babel. And so we know the Tower of Babel, this was um, man, in many ways, following after the, uh, the, the stipulations of the covenant with Noah, building and creating culture, right? Um, but they're doing it for their end, for their glory. And, you know, they say when they're building the Tower of Babel, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower up to God. They were seeking to build the kingdom of man up to God. And directly after that, in the narrative of Genesis, we have God appearing to Abram and telling him, I'm going to build the kingdom of God among men. So you have that direct contrast of what man's efforts are versus what God's purposes are. And even when we talk about building culture and, and cultural engagement, like we were talking about last week in the covenant of Noah, for man, culture building is always done out of idolatry, out of self-aggrandizement for the glorification of man himself. It's always with an aim towards man, whereas um, by God's revelation and when it's, you know, the Lord who's building the house, our labor is not in vain. Man's efforts are always ultimately in vain. He can't build anything of lasting eternal value, whereas God working through his people is building things that do have lasting value. So you immediately get that contrast of um, you know man's efforts versus God's purposes. And so you have God graciously calling Abram out of a paganist, idolatrous lifestyle that he was living among the Chaldeans. Um, there's nothing here. Like what we saw with Noah, remember it said that Noah was righteous and that he feared the Lord. There's nothing in here about Abram being righteous, so there's nothing to make us think that Abraham was, um, you know, following the true and living God before God called to him and called him out of uh, the situation that he was in. And so he graciously calls Abraham just as a as a uh, totally free grace call. And he calls him to radical obedience. He tells him to leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. So God goes to Abraham and you know immediately makes these radical demands on him. Um, but with this call, again, we have the first uh, special revelation since the time of Noah. So you have all these generations now God, once again, is actively working in human history, revealing himself to Abraham, and in so doing, um, revealing to Abraham this promise that he's making, uh, the promise of what he's going to do. And so um, God calls him, and he makes this promise to him, and the promise that God makes to Abraham has four distinct elements to it. Um, and some of them, you know, the covenant with Abraham tonight, we're talking about chapters 12 and 15. Next time we're going to look at chapter 17. Those three uh, chapters, those three installments make up the full Abrahamic covenant. But the promises of the covenant uh, that God makes are a multitude of offspring, kings, uh, kings and rulers to come from Abraham's line, the physical land of Canaan, and a transnational blessing that's going to come through Abraham. Those are the four promises that God makes to Abraham. And even the promise of, you know, kings and rulers, that becomes explicit in chapter 17, but it's implicit here in chapter 12. So, again, just briefly, I want to touch on these four promises. And again, just to keep in mind here, right now, focus your minds on the physical, literal aspects of these promises. So the first promise is offspring. Again, that's literally Abraham would have a long genealogy with a multitude of descendants coming from him. That God, and again, this is explicit 
in chapter 15 where he says, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars in the heavens. But it's implicit here because when he says to Abraham in uh, verse 2 of chapter 12 that he's going to make of him a great nation, uh, to make Abraham a nation necessarily means that he's going to have a lot of offspring, that his family is going to be huge if he's going to be a great nation. So you have this first promise of literal, physical multitude of descendants from Abraham. They were going to make up a sizable population. The second promise, and again, this one is explicitly made in chapter 17, which we'll look at next time, but it's implicit here, is the promise of kings or rulers to come from the line of Abraham. Again, if you're thinking about the reality of a nation, um, either this multitude of people is going to be ruled by some sort of outside force, it was going to be some sort of colony or some sort of imperial outpost by some sort of outside kingdom, or it was going to be a nation ruled by, uh, you know, one of Abraham's descendants. And so, if it's going to be this nation, it, it's not going to be just this tribal group or something that has this, uh, you know, outside force ruling over it. But they would Abraham's offspring would rule over themselves as this nation that he was building. So that's the second promise: kings, rulers from his line. And the third physical promise that we have is the land of Canaan. Again, you know, God lays out the geographic dimensions in chapter 15 from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates this you know literal geographical spot on the map that God said was going to belong to Abraham and to his descendants it was going to be theirs by right that the offspring of Abraham have a covenantal right to this particular plot of land again physical literal promises made to Abraham and ultimately what these promises add up to is the promise of the kingdom of Israel a multitude of offspring rulers and uh, you know physical place because that's the other thing you need for a nation or a kingdom is a physical location otherwise again you're just this sort of ethnic tribal nomadic group if you don't have uh, you know land with borders and so what God is promising to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12 is that he is from Abraham's offspring going to build a kingdom on this earth in this geographical spot that's what God is promising to him physical literal kingdom um, does that is that good so far all good all right perfect um, yeah not too hard to understand just taking our time to go through it and throughout scripture, so this is primarily the, uh, the aim of the Abrahamic covenant. These are the main promises. Offspring, kings, and the land. Offspring and the land. That is throughout scripture, throughout the Old Testament, almost exclusively, and even in the New Testament, especially in Acts, uh, when they're you know, talking to the Jews, almost exclusively when, when the Bible talks about the inheritance of Abraham's offspring. When it talks about the promise of God's covenant with Abraham, it is referring to the offspring and to the land. And so even though our minds want to go straight to all these great fulfillments in Christ, we'll get there, but in terms of Scripture, and this is why I said we got to be really careful to not go beyond what Scripture says and to not make the covenants actually accomplish more than they actually do, almost exclusively... When it talks about the Abrahamic inheritance, it's talking about offspring and the land. Turn to Psalm 105. There's many places we can go, but I think Psalm 105 is one of the places that just puts it very succinctly and um, you know pretty completely. When we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, remember, primarily, we're talking about the physical promises that God made to Abraham, the land and the offspring. Psalm 105. Um, verses 6 through 11. And the psalmist writes, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. 
He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And so, again, there's we could spend a lot of time going throughout the Old Testament, looking at all the places the covenant with Abraham is referenced. Um, but like I said, this sort of sums it up nicely. He says, this is the covenant that he made with Abraham and with his offspring. And it says the land of Canaan. So for us, don't be so quick to jump past that to kind of the spiritual pointing forwardness to Christ. The land of Canaan, that's the, you know, and the offspring dwelling in it. That's the main promise of the covenant with Abraham. And uh, it's also worth noting that God fulfilled all of these promises in the covenant that he made with Abraham. These promises did not go unfulfilled. If you guys would turn over to 1 Kings chapter 4, uh, we'll look at a couple of spots in 1 Kings that indicate the fulfillment of these promises. Uh, and again, just thinking of what exactly the scope of this covenant is, because that's what we're talking about in this class. You know, we want to see the mystery of Christ unfolding as a mystery. And so with each covenant, we need to think and ask, what actually is the scope of what this accomplishes? What is God promising right here and now to this you know, person and to his offspring? And so if you look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, just very briefly, we're told that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. And so in that brief sentence right there, we see the offspring promise fulfilled. The descendants of Israel were as many as the sand on the seashore. We see the kings and rulers promise fulfilled. Here's Solomon, an offspring of Abraham, ruling over this physical geographical land. And then if you turn over a couple of pages to 1 Kings chapter 8, this is the dedication of the temple under Solomon. And really, um, this here, 1 Kings 8, the, you know, the erection and dedication of the temple is the climax of the Old Covenant. This is the high point. This is the, the golden age of the land of Israel and of this kingdom. And this is where all of the promises that God made come to fruition. There's peace, there's rest, there's wealth, there's abundance, all of that. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. So you have there from the mouth of Solomon inspired scripture that the whole promise of God, all the physical promises he made were fulfilled. So um, the, the big physical promises that God made to Abraham were fulfilled in history, in time, in space. Now, the last promise that he makes here is of a little bit of a different character. And this this fourth promise is uh, the big installment of the mystery of Christ that we're going to see unfold. And it really points forward to the future. So you have these physical promises. And this is kind of a good segue of us going from the historical dimension of this covenant to the typological dimension. So in chapter 12, verse 3, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we have that promise that God makes to Abraham that through Abraham would come a transnational global blessing that all the families would be blessed by the offspring of Abraham and this is again the the big next next phase of the mystery of Christ and what this is is the promise of the new covenant in more explicit terms so God promises that through the line of Abraham, 
would come this promised seed that was referenced in Genesis 3.15, that it would be through Abraham that this promised seed would come who would crush the serpent, destroy the curse, reverse its effect, bring about the new consummated kingdom. That's the promise here in Genesis 12.3. And so, like I said in the beginning, it narrows the scope of this messianic expectation to the family of Abraham and to his offspring. And so, so he promises Abraham this kingdom that he's going to build, but ultimately that kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, does not exist for its own sake, but it exists as a means of bringing about the messianic king who would bless the nations. And that's one of the things that Israel ultimately forgot about, and even during the life and after the life and death and ministry of Christ, the people of Israel still had that sort of expectation until Pentecost. They forgot that Israel never existed for its own sake, but it existed in order to bring the promised seed into the world who would bless the nations. The kingdom of Israel was the vehicle for this blessing. But it's very important for us to remember that this promise here in Genesis 12:3 is not itself the new covenant. And we're going to see it kind of play out. Um, like in, in the garden in Genesis 3:15, this is a promise. Genesis 3:15 was a promise that God was going to do something new. It was a promise of the new covenant in seed form. This is a reiteration of that promise in a little bit more detail. But it's not itself the actual new covenant. And as we go through tonight, as we keep going through the class, I think we'll uh, see that that's you know becomes more clear. But this is important because, like I said, the Abrahamic covenant is where different covenant theologies start to diverge. And if we remember that the covenant with Abraham is not the same as the new covenant, then we'll, you know, we can more easily look at each on their own terms. And you don't automatically take the form and the function of the covenant with Abraham and put it onto the new covenant. We can look at them uh, separately, distinctly, with what they're meant to accomplish. Um, one thing... I'm going to draw a little diagram. I thought of this today. It might not help at all. And for those who are going to just be listening, sorry. They found me this chalkboard to draw on, so we'll be like we're in school. Um, This might help. It might not help. But just to think of the kind of two different perspectives that we can have uh, on the covenant with Abraham. So I'll show you guys all what I'm drawing. We have the Old Testament. In the New Testament. So one perspective of the covenant with Abraham is that it is the same as the new covenant. And so with Abraham, put Abrahamic covenant on this side in the Old Testament. It is just one straight line from the Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant. But it's just kind of in shadows over here. And then with Christ, it becomes clear. But it's all the same covenant. It's the same line. That's one perspective on this. However, what we're talking about here and what you know, I really believe uh, biblical, you know, biblically is more accurate is on the one side, you have the Abrahamic covenant. And it is just constantly pointing with all sorts of types to something else, you know, pointing to that mystery of Christ. And then Christ comes and you have the new covenant that it was pointing to all along, but now it's made clear. So two distinct covenants, but it's still pointing upward to that. So the one perspective, same covenant, one side is in shadows, the other side is in light. Other side, two distinct covenants, but one is constantly pointing to the other. And then with the advent of Christ, you have it come to light. So that might have been more confusing to see the diagram, but I thought maybe it might help a little bit. Just so that you know what we're talking about, keeping them separate in our minds, and so we can, you know, when the time comes for us to get to the covenant of Christ, we can get to, uh, you know, we can look at it on its own terms for what it accomplishes itself. Um, You know, I wish we had an actual classroom chalkboard, but it'll work. Um, 
one thing too, so this promise that you know God made to Abraham is the promise that his physical offspring would bring forth the Messiah. Another way to think of this is that the old covenant is pregnant with the new covenant, meaning that it is the the new covenant develops uh, continually through the old covenant, and the old covenant people literally give birth to the Christ of the new covenant, but it's distinct. Just like a child is distinct from his mother, so you know the two are intimately connected and you know even bear a lot of resemblance, but the new covenant is distinct from the old covenant. And it's also worth pointing out that this promise uh, made to Abraham also is explicitly fulfilled. Um, and actually, you know, we won't flip there, but if you guys want to write down in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79, that's, you know, after the birth of Christ, where there's that open acknowledgement, I think, by Simon, that this is God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in the birth of Christ. So all four of the, we have, you know, biblical data that tells us that all four of these promises, the offspring, the kings, the land, and the blessing to the nations are fulfilled. So are there any questions at this moment? I know that was kind of a lot. All right, great. Perfect. Um, But like we've talked about throughout this class, a promise by itself is not a covenant. A covenant needs sanctions. It needs penalties. It needs the threat of curse or uh, you know some sort of threats against disobedience, and that's what we get in chapter 15. So flip over to chapter 15 because the promises of chapter 12. Notice in chapter 12, there's no the word covenant doesn't appear. There's no threats for disobedience. There's no sign of the covenant given in chapter 12. These are just promises. Uh, In chapter 15, the covenant is ratified with this ceremony that show us the sanctions of this covenant. Just like we talked about last week with the rainbow, those implicated the sanctions that if God fails to uphold his covenant promises, he's putting himself under the threat of curse. We see something similar in chapter 15, and Paul, you pointed that out last week. Um, But one thing, if you guys actually would turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, because I don't want to confuse people even more. But turn over to Hebrews 9. And actually, you guys might want to just keep a finger in Hebrews 9. Because we're going to be kind of going back to Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 a few times. But um, in Hebrews 9, we get this uh, more explicitly talking about why the sanctions are necessary to ratify a covenant. And to actually, well, to ratify a promise. To make a promise into a covenant And if you look at Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17, there's this interesting passage. And if you guys have the ESV, it's translated um, in this way. It says that where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, this, uh, this book that I'm utilizing argues, and I think that it's a convincing argument, that that translation isn't the most accurate because really Hebrews has nothing to do, like that translation kind of makes it seem like kind of like a last will and testament that we think of, like, you know, when you die, then it goes into effect and your, you know, property or whatever else gets distributed. That's not at all what Hebrews is dealing with. Hebrews is dealing very explicitly with um, covenant and uh, the nature of covenant and what it does. And so uh, Sam Renahan, who uh, did this book, he offers this translation as, for where there is a covenant, the death of the covenanter must be pledged. For a covenant is ratified by corpses, since it would have no power while the covenanter lives. Basically, and this reality is testified to elsewhere in scripture, but essentially what we've been saying, that a covenant doesn't have any force if there's not the threat of 
blood if there's not some sort of sanctions against disobedience. So that's why the promises of Genesis 12 by themselves are not a covenant. You need this ceremony in chapter 15. And in fact, if you turn back to Hebrews 6, just a couple pages, it actually makes this very explicit uh, with this particular situation with Abraham. Uh, Hebrews 6, beginning in verse uh, 13, it, uh, it says to us, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so what he's talking about in Hebrews is this situation here in Genesis 15. Abraham, having waited years for God to bring him this offspring, to give him this heir, he's starting to lose faith. And he says to God, how will I know that you're going to give me this land? How do I know that you're going to do what you've told me you're going to do because I've waited all this time and I still don't have a son. I still don't have an heir. And so God, just like it says in Hebrews, desiring to show more convincingly the certainty of this promise, he makes it a covenant by going through this ceremony. And so this covenant ratification ceremony is God appearing to Abraham and you know, we see there, especially in verse 17, the sun goes down and it was dark and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What this is, is a theophany. This is a, uh, a, a, a visual revelation of God to Abraham in the form of this flaming torch that passes through these animal carcasses that have been split in half. And what's going on here with God visually showing himself passing through these split up animal carcasses, God is saying, may this be done to me if I don't fulfill all of these promises. God, like we saw last week with the rainbow pointed up at him, God is threatening himself saying, if I don't fulfill these promises, then I myself will bear the curse. I will bear the consequences. And so we see the sanctions of the covenant applied to God himself in this instance with Abraham. And this kind of ceremony was really common in this time among different nations making covenants with one another. But typically among, among men, it's always the, the lesser party, the lower one, the one who is you know, more or less having the other's will imposed on them who takes this self-maledictory oath, who would go through and say, may all of this come upon me if I'm not faithful to my word. But in this case, we have God, the covenant Lord, the greater one, passing through and taking the oath on himself. And so just like we saw last week with Noah, this is the radical grace of God where God did not have to do this, but God freely imposes this these obligations on himself. He swears on himself. He binds himself to these promises. And so, of course, they're fulfilled. God takes this pledge on himself that he's going to fulfill everything that he said to Abraham. And this gives the Abrahamic covenant a very gracious character. Now, we're not next week. We're going to go through kind of the bones of the covenant like we'd have with the other ones, federal headship, sanctions, all the rest. And this covenant's a little more complicated. So when the covenant is expanded in chapter 17, we're going to see some different dimensions added to it. But know here that these, the four promises that we went through are covenanted to Abraham freely by grace before Abraham is circumcised before any works are added on these promises are freely 
covenanted to him. And that's going to be really important for us to keep in mind, especially when we get to Moses and the law and the Ten Commandments, because this reality that God makes and pledges these promises before any obligations or works are imposed on Abraham. It's going to really help us to understand Israel's relationship to the whole law because the nation of Israel grows out of Abraham and the law grows out of the uh, commandment to circumcise that we're going to talk about next time. So just keep that in mind. These promises were made freely before any works were added to it. And this arrangement, this covenant between God and Abraham, lays the foundation for the entire Old Covenant, which again will establish and (coughs) govern the kingdom of Israel. And uh, so the physical, literal, historical promises are, you know, uh, found here in the Old Covenant. This is the foundation for them. But also, and this is where we have to think about it on the second level. So we see it on the historical level. Okay, these are promised by covenant. God will and he does ultimately fulfill them. But then we consider it on the typological level of what all of this points forward to and finds its fuller meaning in. And really, you know, just like we talked about the diagram, two different covenants, but we can say that the entire Abrahamic covenant and really the entire Old Covenant is one massive, detailed, intricate type that points to Christ and the New Covenant and his consummated kingdom. That's what the whole Old Covenant, again, does not mean that the Old Covenant is not significant in and of itself. Remember, types do have their own actual significance in themselves and in their context, but their fuller meaning is found in something greater than themselves and something different than themselves. And that's again why we say we need to separate the old covenant from the new. They're different. They're not the same thing. The old covenant is a type pointing to something greater and different. That would be the new covenant. And so even if you look at Every aspect of the covenant with Abraham, we have it pointing to something greater in the new covenant. And, you know, you can even start with the covenant ratifying ceremony in Genesis 15. That's a type pointing to Christ's sacrifice, like you pointed out last week, Paul, that uh, it points to the malediction that God himself actually suffered in the person of Christ, literally on the cross. Um. Where, where God suffered this, not as a covenant, a covenant breaker. So in this arrangement with Abraham, God was saying, if I'm not faithful to my promises, this curse is going to come upon me. So God doesn't suffer the curse as a covenant breaker, but Christ suffers the curse in order to establish the promises of the new covenant in his blood. And again, we're going to get, you know, we'll talk way more about that when we actually get to Christ, but just kind of as a taste. And so you know the direction we're going I want you guys to see how these types in the Old Covenant find their fulfillment in the New. Um, If you guys are still in Hebrews, flip over to chapter 10. There's this interesting passage in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, where you actually get, uh, you know, biblical confirmation that this ceremony with Abraham is a type that's fulfilled in Christ. So... Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And that phrase, that reference to the curtain of his flesh being opened is a reference back to these animal carcasses being severed and separated and their flesh being torn in half. And now... Christ's flesh has been torn, opening the way for us to pass through that judgment to God. So you see that this ceremony in chapter 15 is explicitly, not not explicitly, that's the wrong word because it's a type and it's a mystery, but it is in that way as a mystery pointing forward to the actual curse 
that Christ would suffer and that we're going to pass through, not through the animal carcasses, but that Christ, because of his own flesh, we're able to pass through his own flesh because of his sacrifice, because he suffered the curse. He opens the way to God for us. And it's also interesting, even the animals used. So the evidence that we have from this time period, like I said, these kinds of ceremonies were you know, relatively common, but the kinds of animals used were not the ones that we read here in Genesis 15. Uh, in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham to take a heifer, a female goat, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Those weren't usually the animals that were customary for that time, but those animals are all included in the sacrificial system that we get to later on in Exodus and Leviticus. And so even the kinds of animals that are used in this ceremony point forward to the sacrificial system, which uh, which makes this type of sacrifice that even more clearly points to Christ and his sacrifice. Does that make sense following along? Um, so... So with that, and, and, and even um, the order in which they come. So we saw in Genesis 12, the covenant is promised. In Genesis 15, the covenant is ratified. It doesn't become a covenant until the sanctions, until the blood is shed, right? Even that order, we see in Genesis 3, the new covenant is promised. In Genesis 12, the new covenant is promised. In 2 Samuel 7 with David, the new covenant is promised, but it's not ratified. It doesn't become a covenant until the blood of Christ is shed on the cross, until the blood of the covenant is poured out and those sanctions are put into force. That's when the promise becomes a covenant. Another reason why we need to distinguish and separate the old and the new covenant and see the real discontinuity that exists. Um, the uh, what else? The the land promise. Look at the major promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The land promise was a type of the consummated kingdom that Christ is going to bring about. Um, this dwelling place for Abraham's offspring points forward to the dwelling place for all of God's people, the New Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom. Again. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. We read that by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so again, explicitly telling us that the land of Canaan that God promised to Abraham was a type that points forward to that heavenly kingdom whose designer and builder with God, the consummated kingdom that Christ is establishing through the new covenant. Again, real land, really significant in and of itself, pointing forward to something greater, something better, and something different. Um, the offspring, God's promise to Abraham that he was going to make his offspring like the stars in heaven or like the sand on the sea, that's a type. It points forward to the uh, all the, the people of Christ, all of Abraham's offspring according to his faith. Um, you guys don't have to turn there, but you can if you want to. Galatians chapter 3, that's another one. We're going to look more at Galatians 3 next week because that's really important for our understanding of the covenant with Abraham. Um, Galatians 3 verse 29, we read that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the physical, literal promise that Abram would have a multitude of literal offspring was a type pointing to the fact that the people of Christ, the people of the new covenant, the people who are heirs of Abraham's faith would be multitude. There would be a huge number of the people of Christ. Uh the promise of kings to reign over the offspring of Abraham was a type of Christ uh, who is the king who will reign over all of Abraham's true offspring according to faith. The, uh, the faith of Abraham, even Abraham believing God and trusting him, even that is a type that points to the kind of faith that we need to have uh, in the finished work of Christ. 
again, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, uh, we read that, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so even Abraham's faith, and, and again, next, next time we'll look at Galatians 3 and Romans 4, which also goes into all this, that the, the faith that Abraham had points forward to the kind of faith that we have in Christ and in his finished work that it's the people of faith who are the true offspring of Abraham. And so all of this uh, is, a again, great. When we see the way that the mystery of Christ is revealed through these types and shadows and increments, but that this covenant with Abraham, especially every aspect of it, and all of the old covenant is filled with these types pointing to Christ, they're significant in themselves, but they all point to that greater, fuller meaning. And so, because part of the promise of the Old Covenant is that God is going to bring about this blessing to the nations, that God is going to uh, you know, uh, bring about the Messiah through the Old Covenant people, it intimately connects the two. The Old Covenant and the New Covenants are intimately connected. One of them leads directly to the other, but they're distinct. And so, like I've been saying throughout, they need to be considered distinctly. We don't automatically transfer the form and function of the Abrahamic Covenant onto the New Covenant. They are two different covenants. Um, However, the Old Covenant... Beginning with Abraham, uh, it's through that covenant that the mystery of Christ continues to be more and more revealed through types and through shadows until the true Christ, the true Messiah, comes and establishes the new covenant in his blood. So what we have here, that vague promise of Genesis 3.15, that I'm going to send this seed of the woman, he's going to crush the serpent, That vague promise becomes much more explicit and much more clear with Abraham and much more focused. And as we go through, you know, we'll get to Moses and David, all of that, uh, the, the mystery and the promise, we get more and more details of how God is going to fulfill this ultimate purpose to bring about this blessing to all the nations, to all the families of the earth. And all the while... And again, keep this in mind so we don't just jump straight to the end. Try to, you know, it's it's like reading a mystery book. You know, you don't want to just jump straight to the end. You want to read it and see how it's revealed stage by stage. All the while, God is really, truly, historically governing his people under the old covenant. And so next, next time, we're not going to be here next week, next time we're going to look more exactly of what the Abrahamic covenant does and who it does it for. Uh, So that's all I've got for tonight. Do you guys have any questions or anything to add? I know that was kind of a lot that we covered tonight. You're making it plain, though, so that's that's good, man. And I think, too, that um, it it all just speaks to how Scripture works together. Mm -hmm. And how important the Old Testament is just as much as the New. We don't want to make that that, uh, mistake of thinking the Old Testament doesn't count. Yes. You're encouraging us to just slow down, pay attention, see what this means here Mm -hmm. before you just jump. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, and that's one of the big purposes of this class. You know, I hope that it helps to make the Old Testament a little bit less tricky and mysterious for us. Again, there's still, even if you understand all this stuff and study it, there's still so much of the Old Testament that's like weird and confusing. Um, but I think all of this really does help us to kind of see how it flows together. So hopefully it, hopefully it's helping out. Anything else? Well, excuse me. Next week, I uh, know we're not here. Your birthday. Your birthday's next week. <laughs> Well, sorry we're not going to be here to celebrate. Yeah, exactly. No, that's right. You go and you do your thing. Well, you know what? Tonight it was Dom's birthday, and he decided not to come and celebrate with us. So he wanted to stay home. Yeah. Well, and that's it. It's 
It's just about staying with your family. Hey, that's all good. Yes, no problem at all. So it works out perfectly. Yes, we will not be here next week, so we'll be back in two weeks. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you once again for the opportunity to come together. And Lord, I do pray that you would be enlightening the eyes of our hearts, Lord God, that we would truly take to heart your word and really seek to work through and to understand even the the difficult and the strange and the foreign-seeming passages and concepts and ideas of scripture, that we would seek to diligently work through those because, God, it's through those things that you've been pleased to reveal yourself and your plan for salvation. So, God, I do pray that you would just be causing us to grow ever more deeply and more richly in our understanding and our grasp of the truths of Scripture, Lord God, and that we would marvel at what you are doing and what you have done in history. And we know, Lord, that we are blessed to be a part of this great heritage, to be heirs of Abraham according to faith, Lord, to be heirs through Jesus Christ and through his finished work and to know that we are a part of your work in bringing about your glorious consummated kingdom Lord you have called us to go forth to make disciples and Father I pray that we would just be diligent in doing that and in proclaiming the rule the authority the reign of our God and Savior Jesus Christ and of the grace by which you save through repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ. So Lord, I do pray that as we grow deeper in our understanding, it would manifest itself in the way that we live our lives and the way that we minister, evangelize, proclaim the gospel and live it out. And it's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.